Every American is acutely aware of the issues surrounding our health care system. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. We have some of the best medical care in the world for those who can afford it. Incredible new drugs that change people's lives but can be very costly. Many of the best doctors the world has ever seen, but not all are perfect. That's why Dr. Steve Feldman created the show, Getting Better Health Care, to help walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take better care of ourselves and to better understand the challenges, issues, controversies, and complexities of our health care system as it exists and as it could be. For better health care and a better health care system, listen to the doctor. Now, here's Steve. Welcome to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman, founder of the DrScore.com physician rating website. On our show today, we're going to be talking about some of the myths that surround the development of new drugs. Does it really cost a billion dollars to get a drug approved? Is the FDA arbitrary and capricious in what it does? We're speaking with Dr. Lawrence Friedhoff. Dr. Friedhoff led the team that got worldwide approval for Aricept, the main drug used to treat Alzheimer's disease. He's gotten a number of other drugs approved over the years, and he's the author of the book, New Drugs, An Insider's Guide to the FDA's New Drug Approval Process for Scientists, Investors, and Patients. Dr. Friedhoff, welcome to the program. It's very nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. You've had such a successful career in drug development. What made you decide to become an author? Well, you know, a number of years ago, uh, at the launch meeting for a really big product that I got approved, we had a dinner with the CEOs of uh, this big company that was going to sell our product and our CEO, me and the head of R&D for the big company. R&D, research and development. Mm -hmm. Research and development, right. So this guy had maybe 8,000 people, thousands of people reporting to him, multiple products ongoing in development. And he asked me how many people I had working on my project because they had a competitive product and and we beat them. So they had to license ours to sell and they dropped their own. I said, well, about eight. He said, well, I have another NDA program that has 500 people. And ours is way behind, and yours came in on time and in budget. He said, how did you do it? And I said, you know, I was taught a certain way of getting drugs approved, and that's what I did. I, I don't know how to do it with 500 people. I only learned how to do it with eight. I only learned how to do it on time. And I was so busy developing new products that I really didn't have time to think about what was different between what they were doing and what we were doing. Lately, you know, I've had more time. And I decided to write a book to answer that question, which I thought was a pretty important one to try and answer. Well, if it helps bring new, better, more effective, uh, safer treatments to market, it, it should be a real blessing for us. Well, that's my hope, to be honest with you. I'm, you know, I'm a drug development person. That's how I earn my living. I really wrote the book with the idea of trying to help other people learn how to get new drugs approved. And if you look at the statistics of the industry as a whole, they're very, very poor. There are very huge amounts of money being spent on drug development and very few new products coming out the other end. And it's just a situation that can't survive. It can't, it's unstable. And I'm hoping that in my small way, I can help 
move things back towards where I think they really could be to the benefit of stockholders, the employees of the company, and the patients who need new medicines. Are there any um, important misconceptions or myths about new drug development? Yeah, I think there are a bunch, and they're a big part of why uh, the drug development process has become less efficient. So uh, one thing that people hear, and I hear quoted to me all the time, is that it costs a billion dollars to get a new drug approved. Now, I've been doing this for 28 years, and I haven't spent anywhere near that amount of money total for all the products that I've gotten approved. What does it cost? Well, the cheapest drug I ever got approved, which is a very special situation, cost about uh, $700,000, including $400,000 that we had to pay for the FDA user fee, which is just a, a fee you have to pay to the FDA to get them to evaluate your drug. So that was the cheapest. The most expensive was probably total was spent maybe $70 million. And the, the most profitable of the products I got approved, we spent about $42 million on, I think. And that drug returned probably $20 billion in revenue. Well, so when they say hmm. that, that it costs a billion dollars, are they talking about that it was $70 million for this one that got approved plus another $930 million for all the, the money they threw down the toilet on other drugs trying to get them approved that never made it? That's exactly right. And, you know, on its face, it may seem like that's a reasonable way to think about things, but really it isn't if you look more deeply, because what you will find is, if you really look into who gets drugs approved and who doesn't, is that the same small group of people and the same small group of companies gets most new drugs approved, and the remainder get little to no drugs approved. So my feeling is if companies have a long history of being unsuccessful, no matter how much money they're spending, they shouldn't really be counted. They're not serious players. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the companies that are relatively consistently successful, then their cost per new drug is much lower than a billion dollars. So, it, but it's easy for companies to just say, well, you know, it's so expensive for everybody because on average it costs this much. So the fact that I spent a billion or $2 billion and didn't come up with anything, that's okay because that's really what it costs. But it doesn't. Uh, for example, every project I've worked on from beginning to end where I was really in charge and I wasn't just advising somebody or helping, every single one of them has gotten approved. Wow, that's impressive. Um, you mentioned this $400,000 user fee that the FDA mm -hmm. is charging. Is, yes. are, are drug companies getting their money's worth? Um, and uh, I guess at the same time, uh, does the FDA feel beholden to the person who's paid that money? Um, does, does that make the FDA approve a product that really should never have been approved? Um, okay, so there there. There are two parts to that question. Let yeah. me answer the second part first, because I think it's very important. Does the FDA feel beholden to the companies because they have to pay this fee? So in my experience, the answer is no. The FDA, in my experience, and I've had 
a fair amount of experience. I've met with the people there. I know some of them. I know some who've left that you know I can talk to more freely since they left the agency. <clears throat> My experience with them is they are exactly what you would think they would be. They understand they have a very serious responsibility. They don't want to keep drugs off the market that are going to help people, and they don't want to approve drugs that are going to hurt people. And it's often very difficult to tell which a product is. When there's uncertainty, their tendency is to not approve something because they feel like most physicians do. First, do no harm. Don't do something that will hurt a lot of people. But it requires a very careful judgment, and that's what they try to do. The user fee, I think, has, in my opinion, has absolutely no impact on how the FDA decides about what drug to approve. Now, what was the first part of your question? Yeah, the good, um, I appreciate you separating those out. So the the, the question was, is, are drug companies getting their money's worth? Are, are they oh, dealing are they with a professional yes. organization that sets – you know, a defined a defined criteria that, or is there a moving target that companies are being asked to reach? Okay, that's the other excuse that companies often use when they're unsuccessful with FDA. And you you have to understand, the FDA is the perfect target, a perfect excuse for companies that fail because the company can accuse the FDA of being unfair or changing their rules. And the FDA, because of confidentiality, really cannot respond to that. They can't say, well, you know, that's not true. Look at these minutes from our meeting. Look at our guidance. They, they simply are not allowed to do that. So it's easy for a company to say, well, they changed the rules or they didn't tell us or whatever. Now, let's look at some facts as opposed to one side's opinion, because clearly there are two sides to that opinion. I don't think if you ask the FDA people, in a way that they could, you know, in a, in a circumstance where they could respond, they would say, yes, we were unfair. Clearly, they, they think that they're being fair. So let's take a look. Do they change the rules? Well, go to the FDA website. There's a page there that lists all the FDA guidances. There are dozens of them, one for uh, treatments for hypertension, one for treatments of schizophrenia, for depression. Those guidances tell you what you have to do to get a drug like that approved. Most of them are, they're all dated. So that, and most of them have dates that are 10 years old, 20 years old, 30 years old. My experience is if you follow those guidances and you do what the FDA says they require you to do, they will approve, and you get results that support the approval, they will approve your drug. Now, if they're changing their criteria all the time, how come those guidances are around for decades without changing? So no, I have not found that they have that they change what they want. What does happen is that new results are obtained by a company that change what the FDA should want. So the FDA may not say, well, we want you to see whether this drug causes uh, heart valve damage. They may not say that up front. But if you get a couple of patients who have heart valve damage in your trials, then they may say, well, gee, you know, that's very unusual. We don't see that typically. We'd like to see some more information about heart valve damage. Now, a company can handle a new adverse event in one of two ways. They can just sort of ignore it, report it to the FDA in the most minimal way, and hope that nobody notices. 
which is very unlikely in my experience. The FDA people, that's their job. Their job is to notice. Or they can say, gee, you know, this looks like it could be something bad, or maybe not. Let's try and find out. Let's talk to the FDA, explain to them what we see before they find it, tell them what we think the explanation is, and give them a plan to, to address the issue, whether that plan is to just say, well, gee, this is too dangerous, we don't think we should continue, or maybe we should limit the duration of the trials or the kinds of patients or add new evaluations. If you're proactive and you, you know, you're upfront with the agency, my experience is that they are reasonable. They it's tend a, to it, it, err on the side of safety. Yeah, what would you do? It, it sounds like you have to be a good scientist. That's right. You have to be a good scientist. You have to be able to look at the work that you're doing and the results that you're obtaining objectively and to address problems as early as possible. And that's always difficult in a commercial environment where making, recognizing a problem can affect the company's stock price, can affect your chances for promotion, can affect your bonus, et cetera. So it takes a certain kind of person to to be able to do that, and also it takes a certain amount of medical judgment to know when to be alarmed and when to say, no, this is something that is not likely to be a problem that we should worry about. You mentioned um, that uh, talking to people who've left can talk more freely. The ones who are Mm -hmm. there who can't talk so freely, is that due to confidentiality issues or is there more to it than that? Well, they can talk as a... You know, that's a very interesting question, and there's a lot of ways I could answer, and and it's probably a whole series of programs. But suffice it to say that the FDA people, the people, if I'm a company and I'm working on a new drug for Alzheimer's disease or whatever, and I go down to the FDA and say, look, this is what we found so far. This is what we intend to do next. Um, is, Is that acceptable to you? There are certain things that they can say frankly and certain things that they can't. So certain things they can say frankly are, yes, we believe that these things that you intend to do comply with our guidelines and therefore they're acceptable and they'll accept, they'll support approval. They can also say things like, yes, you can do that. But in our experience, there are often problems when sponsors try things like that. Now, what what are they saying to you when they say something like that? They can't say to you, oh, you know, Pfizer tried that last year and it was a complete disaster. Yeah. Or you know, Merck did this 10 years ago and they had a lot of problems. They can't discuss confidential information about a particular company, obviously. So, But what they can do is give you the benefit of their experience, which is usually, I mean, almost always, much broader than any individual companies. They know what everyone is doing. They know what seems to work. They know what seems to not work. And very often companies come away from a meeting where the FDA said, well, we found it best if people do this. They come away hearing, "Uh, you know, maybe we should do that, maybe not. It's really up to us. But if you come away from a meeting like that with that interpretation of what the FDA has said, you've lost an enormous source of um, of good advice mm-hmm. because what they're really doing is giving you 
the benefit of a very broad experience which no individual company can have. And if you ignore that experience, then you're losing something very valuable. You'll probably make the same dumb mistake. Your mistake will be dumb because you'll be the tenth person to make it. Yeah. The first person to make the mistake, it wasn't a mistake. It was an honest attempt to do the right thing. So companies often misinterpret what FDA says. And back to your question, do, do we get our money's worth from them? I think we get 100 times our money's worth from them, honestly. Uh, that, that is my experience. They're a source of very valuable advice. They are truly concerned with doing the right thing, in my experience, you know, by and large. Every big organization has a person here or there who's different. But as an institution, I think they are genuinely dedicated to doing the right thing. And um, I found that if you, if you listen to them, and are honest with them, you have a much better chance of being successful than if you don't listen to them. You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman. We're speaking today with Dr. Lawrence Friedhoff. He's the author of the book, New Drugs, an insider's guide to the FDA's new drug approval process for scientists, investors, and patients. Dr. Friedhoff, you're, you're talking about something that I have um, great interest in it. Our, our health system is very complex. There's all these different groups. Uh, we, we're talking about the drug companies and FDA today. Um, we, we've got doctors and patients. And, and often what we, we see is people in one group blaming people in the other group. And you have actually gone and talked to the people at the other group, at the FDA, and you found them to be serious people, hard at work. And I get the sense if we go into any group, whether it's the doctors, the insurers, we would see the same sort of thing. Uh, yes, I, com I completely agree with you. What varies and what, you know, I wrote the book to try to address is not the intention. I think most people intend to do the right thing. It's the ability the ability to do the right thing. And I can't really comment about how FDA is managed. I really know nothing about it except to see the end result uh, when, you know, when I have meetings or when they approve drugs that I've worked on. Um, but I do know from the pharmaceutical business that there's a tremendous spectrum of abilities. And it is not terribly correlated to company size. Uh, and, and it varies a lot over time, even within a company, in ability to manage what is a very complicated uh, process that's got to balance a lot of conflicting interests, just like you said. I mean, you want to do the right thing by the patient, by the stockholders, by your management, by the regulators, and the needs of these groups are different. And balancing them is something that's, that's very, very complicated and takes special kind of training, really, to, uh, to develop. And, you know, that I was very lucky. I joined the company. My first job was for a company that uh, was very successful, got new drugs approved all the time, sometimes several a year. Wow. Um, and, and they taught me how to do it and how to manage people to make the group function well. But that skill is very rare still in our business. So it become, had become much rarer over time. So what are some of the advantages and disadvantages of our current system for getting new drugs to market? 
Well, I think the the advantages are the regulatory system. I've found it to be helpful to me in, uh, in you know in ways that I haven't described yet. For example, um, occasionally in my career, I've been asked to do things that I thought were really immoral. You know, that would that would harm people uh, in in a way that just wasn't acceptable to me. Now, in another industry, I probably would have had to just quit, uh, and they would have put somebody else in my place. And if that guy or woman quit, they you know they keep on going until they found somebody who's willing to do it. But uh, with the FDA there, it's very easy. I just say, well, FDA will never let us do this, <laughs> and that takes the heat off of me. And if push comes to shove, I can actually, you know, send a letter to FDA and ask them, you know. Uh, and once you do that once or twice, the company gets the idea that, you know, if you're not just being a, an obstructionist, that this is just not possible and they should listen to you and not bother FDA over things that are very open and shut. So I think the regulatory system, by and large, functions pretty well. There are lots of written guidances there are provisions for meetings to address things that aren't covered exactly by the guidances. Um, there's a balance between risk of approving a product that will later turn out to be not good or to be dangerous versus the cost and the time that it takes to get a new product approved. Now, yeah, and, not to and mention the suffering of the people waiting for those drugs. Exactly. And... To be honest with you, I think, personally, that the balance we have now is reasonable. However, this is very much a political decision. It's not a scientific, there's no scientific way to draw that line of risk versus reward. And so I'm also hopeful that the book will give people some idea of how sensitive our current system is to the toxicity of a new drug. Very rare toxicities will not be picked up by our current system. To pick those up, you'd have to do a much more expensive, time-consuming development process, and that would mean fewer drugs and longer waits for patients. If we, you know, if we make things shorter and less burdensome on people like me, then you're taking a bigger risk down the line that you'll have problems uh, after a drug is approved. And where that line should be drawn is probably something that every reasonable person, you know, would differ on to some degree or another. So somehow as a society, we have to come to a consensus. And to me, I think the current system has evolved over decades. It's international now. There's a consensus more or less uh, between the United States, Europe, and Japan and unified the regulations to some degree or the guidances to some degree. Um, so I think the balance is, is reasonable. But that's just my opinion. It's really an ethical and personal decision that we somehow have to come to consensus on. What could we do to make the system better? Get more eight-people teams like yours at drug companies and maybe people with similar expertise at the FDA, or are there other things that should be done? Well, I think one of the problems that's at the root of what I think is now a crisis because there was just an article in Bloomberg today about the, the terrible problem and productivity of R&D in, in uh, the pharmaceutical business. One of the problems is that the value of people who are capable of getting new drugs approved and teams 
who can work together to achieve that kind of goal is not reflected on a company's balance sheet or income and loss statements. I'm not an accountant, but I worked in this business long enough to know that it's not at all uncommon. In fact, based on my personal experience and many people that I've talked to and many people have talked to me about the book, that a team will be put together. It will take time. It may take 10 years to get a team that can really reliably get new products approved for a plausible, reasonable price in a reasonable period of time. Then an NDA submission goes in, the drug gets approved, and all those people are fired. This happens all the time. And when those people leave, something incredibly valuable goes out the door, and yet the company does not have to report any kind of a loss. And that loss doesn't become apparent until years later when the number of new drug approvals falls off. And I've seen this time and again, a company that's got one of the companies I worked for, they were getting drugs approved to a year. Then they were acquired. All those R&D, they were acquired because they had all these great products and a great pipeline. Then the acquiring company fired everybody who, were, who invented and developed those new products and got them approved. So these companies basically see themselves as marketing and sales companies, and they, and they value those components of the companies and not the R&D to the same extent. Yes, not the R and D to the to not the R and D people and an organization to the extent that they should, and so it's, it's very easy under those circumstances to lose this critical capability. And that company, by the way, the acquiring company, went from you know the the, common, the combined companies were getting two products approved a year. They went for thirteen after they laid those people off. They went for thirteen years without getting any new products approved. You know. It, it reminds me of um, oh the football or basketball coach at a major university. You know, you, you you hire a new coach. You're not hiring a new coach. You're hiring a new team. The coach, the assistant coaches, the recruiting people, they know how to build a team and, and, and a, a football program and uh, make it successful. Or uh, even – uh, at the university level, the development team. You, you, you think you hire a new direct development director. You actually hire a development team who brings his assistant directors, and, and they know uh, they build up relationships. They, they know how to manage things. Um, it, it sounds like these R&D t- teams, once they form, need to be spun off as separate companies or something so that they don't get dispersed. Well, they need they need a champion and a person in the very highest parts of the company that understands the value of having these people around. And that's, you know, when the, when that kind of management is there, companies almost always are successful. And when a management that's, you know, equally dedicated, equally ambitious, equally talented in, in many other ways, uh, but doesn't understand the you know this unique combination of abilities because after all you want your product approved in Japan and China and Afghanistan and France and the UK and you have factories all over the world making the product and studies being done all over the world it takes a special kind of talent to merge all these different cultures and different people and get a document that will stand the scrutiny of the regulators 
who are very, very careful about what they let get approved, as they should be. Besides companies letting go a, a, a successful R&D team, do you have any other examples of, of, of cautionary, or cautionary tales that tell us how things could be better? Well, yeah. I mean, I have some examples, some of which I cite in the book. I mean, I, you know, I have a, a lifetime of apocryphal stories that I've collected and, and, and my own experiences. But I'll give you a, a good example from a long time ago, uh, and that's the example of a drug called gancyclovir. Um, this was a, you know, at its time was a very, very important new drug. It was used to treat uh, a kind of retinitis that caused blindness in patients with AIDS. And AIDS was a relatively new disease at that time. And this, this kind of retinal disease was so bad, is so bad, that without treatment, no one ever had reported a patient whose vision improved. Vision always got relentlessly worse until the patient was blind or died from HIV, which was, which was much more common in those days because the treatments weren't as good. So a company was de developing this drug, and because it was so important to prevent blindness, because they had a certain level of com compassion, uh, they decided that they would, it would that in their mind, it was unethical to treat patients with placebo, even though they didn't know that their drug worked. They thought it probably would, but they didn't know for sure. Uh, they thought that the FDA accepted this idea somehow. Um, this, this all came out at a public advisory committee meeting. That's how I know about it. And, uh, and so they went ahead and they did a small study, and sure enough, they had patients whose vision improved. Uh, you know, almost all the patients didn't get worse. This was just unheard of you know, with this disease. And so pretty much all the infectious disease community was convinced that this drug was, you know, very, very important for these patients. Unfortunately, there was some kind of miscommunication with FDA. Something went wrong somewhere because at the advisory committee meeting uh, where a group of academics was brought in by the FDA to evaluate the, the clinical trial data, the uh, response from the advisory committee and from the FDA was that without a placebo-controlled trial, they couldn't approve this product. Now, if this company had simply in their first study, the, the drug worked very quickly. If this company simply in their first study had taken 10 patients and put them on active drug and 10 on placebo, measured the vision every day, shown whenever anybody's vision got even a little bit worse, they'd switch them, drop them out of the study and switch them to active treatment. They could have done a placebo-controlled trial. Within a month or two, they would have been able to show a benefit relative to placebo. Nobody would have suffered a devastating decline in vision because if, if their vision declined even a little, they could switch to active treatment. And so they could have done a placebo-controlled treatment as uh, trial as initial study. But once they convinced everybody that this drug really did prevent blindness, they couldn't do a placebo-controlled trial. And yet the advisory committee demanded it before the product could get approved. So they were at a stalemate because they just neglected to do a couple of patients for a very short time at the beginning of their development program. Ultimately, the drug was approved without a placebo-controlled trial, but for several years, this company, being the ethical company they were trying to be, 
had to give away their drug for free since it wasn't approved. And when you give away an unapproved drug for free, there's an enormous paperwork overhead that goes with that. And so they had to pick up the tab for that as well. So they had no revenue, enormous expense, much more complicated for the patients simply because they made a slight misstep at the beginning of their development program. And this is very, very common in drug development, where something that seems fairly inconsequential at the time, if you're not experienced, can grow to become a tremendous headache for the company, for the FDA, the patients, and for the doctors. Um, So that's why it's so important to have experienced people who understand how to balance these issues, you know, how to say, well, it's true to do a placebo-controlled trial you know, if the drug really turns out to be super effective, maybe we'll have um, delayed the treatment a little bit for a small number of patients. But you have to balance that against the, the issue of, well, when will this drug be available for, you know, 10,000 patients who need it every day? Absolutely. Dr. Friedhoff, um, you're the author of New Drugs, an insider's guide to the FDA's new drug approval process for scientists, investors, and patients. Um, in our final moments, do you have any um, other suggestions where our listeners can learn more about um, FDA and our drug approval process? Yeah, there are a lot of very good uh, sources of information. One of the ways to learn the fastest and in the most, I think the most interesting way is to attend an FDA advisory committee meeting. These are open to the public. They're free of charge. You don't even have to sign up before you go. Just get there early, uh, is my advice, and sit in the front seat. Then you'll see the FDA people. They'll be 10 feet away from you. Uh, You'll see the company people. You'll see the advisors who advise the FDA. These are all human beings. They have coffee breaks. You can go up and talk to them during the breaks if you're brave. And you'll see you get a real feeling for what these people are concerned about, how they think, and how this process really works unfolding right in front of you. Just ignore all the stock analysts and people with cell phones who are buying and selling stock during the uh, advisory committee meetings. So that's a, that's a great way to, to learn. Another way is to just visit the FDA website. There are guidances that discuss um, how each kind of new drug or, or how many kinds of new drugs should be um, developed, what kind of studies should be done. And in my experience, the FDA sticks reasonably closely to those guidances. The um, advisory committee meetings also have transcripts that come out a couple of weeks after the committee meeting is over. You can read through them. And again, it's not quite as good as being there in person, but you'll get a feeling for how this institution works. And you can judge for yourself whether you think people are being fair or unreasonable or changing their opinion and so on and so forth. Judge it for yourself. There's a lot of money involved in a successful new drug, and that sometimes distorts and you know, motivates people to say things that aren't completely true one way or another. Probably affects me too. I, you know, I try not to, but we're all prejudiced in one way or another. So look, look at the source yourself. I think people will see that the system is reasonably well-functioning on the government side, but it's the industry side that we have to work on. Wonderful. Dr. Friedhoff, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. We spoke today with Dr. Lawrence Friedhoff. He's author 
of New Drugs, an insider's guide to the FDA's new drug approval process for scientists, investors, and patients. Now, if you're a regular listener of Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net, you've learned a lot in the last few weeks about clinical trials, about the people who develop clinical trials and who um, uh, organize and run clinical trials, the process by which they're done, and even the people who evaluate the results of clinical trials at the FDA. This brings us to next week's program, the Academic Medical Center, a place where some clinical trials are planned, where many clinical trials are done, where the doctors who are on the cutting edge put the results of clinical trials into practical use. Uh, We'll be joined next week by Dr. Steve Block. He's Associate Dean of the Medical School at the Wake Forest University School of Medicine. Well, that's our program for today. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Our theme music is by the incomparable Michael Zioli. Until next week, I wish you the very best of health. Thanks for listening to the show today. Remember to go to DrScore.com to get and give feedback about your doctor and to read others' recommendations about doctors in your area. It's a way to choose your path to healthcare empowerment. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E dot com, DrScore.com. And we'll see you next week right here on Getting Better Healthcare.